from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here this week outside Chicago, Illinois. On this week's edition, an unreasonable approach to smart cities, radically expanding access to renewables, a new map of the tech sustainability space, and the 22-year-olds who are taking on plastic waste. It's a wrap this week on 350. It's September 16th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. As I said, I'm here in Chicago while co-host Green Biz senior writer Lauren Hepler is back in Oakland, California. Hey there, Lauren. Hi, how's it going? Greetings from the middle of America. Yes, my homeland. How is yep. it? It's good. Here for the second of the three Green Biz Executive Network meetings that we're having here in September, having in September. You may recall last week uh, I was in uh, beautiful Florham Park, New Jersey at BASF headquarters with a little side trip to Yankee Stadium. This week we're um, at Baxter International. Baxter, if you don't know it, you hopefully don't know it because you'd probably be familiar with it only if you are uh, familiar with products to treat hemophilia, kidney disease, immune disorders, and other chronic and acute medical conditions. They're uh, uh, obviously a big uh, healthcare company headquartered uh, here in D Deerfield, Illinois. They hosted this week's uh, meeting uh, at their uh, office in Deerfield, Illinois. And we actually spent Wednesday at the Chicago Botanic Garden, which is just up uh, north of downtown in uh, Glencoe, Illinois, a beautiful space where we met for the first of two days and uh, had a great, great dinner and then over to Baxter headquarters in Deerfield. So uh, another great GBEN meeting is under the belt. It will be uh, The third one will be uh, not next week because next week is Verge, but the week after in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, at uh, the headquarters of Steelcase. So, well, you, yeah, you said it. Well, back on the West Coast, things are in full scale verge preparation mode. Hard actually, to believe it's already here. I'm actually happy to not be in the office this week. <laughs> I was I was there Monday, and it was uh, it was pretty intense. People are running around just buttoning things down, and uh, the the thing that's so amazing about what Verge has become is there are so many moving parts. There's not just the conference and all the breakouts and 200 speakers and all that usual stuff you'd expect, but there's a, a Verge Summit series for half-day events within Verge. There's a solution series. There's this interconnect uh, uh, expo, which is the, not only the trade show, but it's run by a microgrid that we build on site. Uh, and there's lounges and all these different things. There's even more that I'm not saying and an after dark party and all kinds of things, all of which require attention and care and feeding logistics and all of that. And so uh, the good news, it's all looking amazing. I think it's going to be a really fun week. Yeah. And the, the last thing we'll say, we'll talk more about Verge later in the show. But if you don't have your tickets to head down to Santa Clara, Silicon Valley next week, you can tune in to the virtual event. Just go to greenbiz.com slash verge. Look in the upper right hand corner of the page and you'll see much more about our virtual event that you can tune into for free. Ask questions of the main stage speakers, chat with fellow participants. It's a good time. Speaking of a good time, let's move on to our Week in Review. So let's begin with a story that you did this week, uh, Lauren. It's called, Can a Million Dollars in Nine Months 
birth equitable cities. I like the little uh, gestation period reference there. Um, but this is about some uh, money that's being given to aspiring social entrepreneurs. Uh, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so this is a new effort. It's a partnership between the Boulder-based startup accelerator, the Unreasonable Institute, and the Rockefeller Foundation, obviously a familiar name in the realm of smart cities for all the work their offshoot 100 Resilient Cities is doing to fund chief resilience officers in cities around the world. But this new effort is called the Future Cities Accelerator, and they're accepting applications through September 25th from social entrepreneurs who are applying for a chance to get $100,000 each and nine months of free advice from people like executives at Google X, as well as a temporary chief financial officer to figure out how to make these social innovation models work uh, in the context of cities. So what are the problems they're trying to solve? So it's really broad, as you might expect. When I was talking to Sean Kusinen, who is the Unreasonable Institute's Director of Accelerators and Internal Operations, he talked about how um, they're not necessarily looking at sustainability in sort of ways you might expect. Like, does this startup uh, have a, a direct way to reduce emissions? They're taking a more holistic approach, sort of looking for solutions that impact either food systems, housing, transportation, energy. They really are looking broadly at the issue of adopting city of adapting cities for massive population growth and particularly for population growth at all different income levels. Um, so it's an interesting effort and I think it dovetails with what we're seeing from cities like Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., New Orleans, who are releasing these interesting new types of resilience plans that try to tie together some of these disparate threads and say, hey, we need to look at issues like income equality alongside uh, climate change and how we're going to brace our cities for future shocks. Well, that sounds quite well reasonable. Uh, but is this uh, focusing on the technology piece or on the human factors? And uh, wh where does these, these entrepreneurs, uh, what are they looking for? They tend to have a bit of a, a tech focus. They they do have existing accelerator programs. And he said so far they have gotten a lot of pitches on bringing internet connectivity to uh, folks throughout cities, which is something that Google's Smart Cities Spin Out Sidewalk Labs is also looking at as sort of a first step to close that digital gap we know exists in a lot of cities. Um, but I'm really interested in seeing how they apply some of these ideas to uh, unconventional models around energy, like I said, food. One thing he mentioned is an applicant that's looking to turn lawns into farms, so making better use of tight land constraints. Um, but here's what Sean had to say about what the Future Cities Accelerator is looking for and how they think about climate in the context of smart cities. Really the idea and the driving force behind this program is we want to find the 10 organizations who have the most potential to create impact at scale for poor and vulnerable populations in U.S. cities. So, um, you know, it's not as much sector-oriented uh, as it is driven by, you know, the impact. You know, we certainly consider the sustainability piece of it. And, I mean, gosh, it's always so hard with sustainability to exactly link. There's, there's so many, I guess, manifestations of, the climate issues that we're facing, but there are, can be hard to trace back to climate change. Um, so it's, it'll be interesting to see what types of applications we get, um, if any, that are trying to tackle, you know, 
helping low-income populations um, in addition to addressing climate change. But I would imagine that some some applicants will come out of the woodwork because of the, yeah, just like the resilient cities um, that, that, that Rockefeller has. Speaking of technology, Joel, you did a, a cool post this week on the Verge ecosystem map that lays out the, the players that we're starting to see uh, really at the convergence of sustainability and technology. Well, this, of course, is the theme of our Verge conference, has been since 2011. And one of the challenges we faced in this, Lauren, is that, as you know, this convergence of sustainability and technology sounds interesting, sounds good, sounds you know intriguing. But what does it actually mean? And what are these uh, these technologies? And what does this space look like? And it's one of these, you know, the parable of the blind men and the elephant, where you know three blind men, you know, approach an elephant and they each feel a different part and think see a little bit of a different piece than the others. It's a rope. It's a spear. It's a it's it's a tree trunk. Um, and I think people see that with with our Verge ecosystem a lot. So really just wanted to show the big picture. So we created this map. It's, it consists of of six hexagons, which uh, so each hexagon represents one of the, the tracks, the main uh, f- uh, focus areas of, of Verge that grid 2.0, sustainable food and water systems, smart and resilient cities, connected transportation, next gen buildings and the circular economy. And then around each of those, there's another six uh, uh, subtopic. So within grid, there's uh, storage, efficiency, rat demand response, renewables, microgrids, project finance. Well, certainly won't go through all of them, but it's kind of a six by six by six grid. And then with each, and then each of those uh, hexagons, there's just a, some of the representative sampling of companies, whether they're obvious companies you'd expect. Uh, you know, Schneider Electric, uh, you know, or O-Power to be in the grid 2.0, but AT&T, maybe not so much. And so uh, you you take a look at these and you get a sense of not just uh, how big and varied this space is, but the interconnectivity among all six of these hubs. I have a question. How did you decide which bucket Google fit into? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, that's a good question. I, we put Google in the connected transportation because, but the the reality is, is that a lot of the companies here, uh, AT&T is another example of uh, G, uh, GE is a great example, Hitachi, several others could have gone in all six of these hubs, six of these categories. Uh, we, we, we just decided in order to fit the most number of of uh, companies on this, you know, map to only put them in one hub. So it was a little bit random. Uh, part of it was just, you know, where, where how do we get the best variety, the best, uh, uh, I think, to, to demonstrate the, the just the number and types of companies that are in all these spaces. But yeah, it, it's it, this is not intended to be comprehensive, exhaustive. Uh, it, it is just uh, an example. But I think the idea here is that. You know, finally, after five years, this will be our sixth annual Verge conference, although we've done about a dozen of Verge events around the world. Um, you know, maybe this it's time to just sort of show what this space is shaping up to look like. And that's what we tried to do with the Verge ecosystem app. Yeah, and it, it sounds like a, a lot of information, and it is, but I would just encourage people to take a look. It's beautifully laid out. I think you enlisted our brilliant creative director, Daniel Kelly, for this. Is that right? Yes, yes thank you for giving uh, uh-huh. uh, a, a shout-out to Danny. Uh, uh, yeah, Daniel Kelly, our, our Green Biz creative director, 
uh, worked with him to figure out the best way to illustrate this. He did a fabulous job. Yeah, it's just a free download, and uh, we're going to have it at Verge. Uh, there'll be some very large uh, uh, blow-ups of it so that you can really you know, take a look at it uh, around the expo floor. So, um, But you know, just get a sense more of what we're talking about when we talk about Verge. Yeah, and when it comes to people who might someday be on that list, uh, our senior writer, Barbara Grady, had a really interesting piece this week on the 22-year-olds tackling our plastic waste. She's referring to a company called BioSelection that has garnered nearly $400,000 from investors to commercialize a process they've bioengineered where bacteria would break down plastic faster than the 500 to 1,000 years that it typically takes for plastic to break down in a landfill. And one of the things that's interesting here is that the two entrepreneurs in question, Miranda Wang and Jeannie Yao, uh, who are all of 22 years old, have actually been doing this uh, since they were teens, and they've been friends, I think, even longer than that. Uh, they did a TED Talk uh, a number of years ago that's uh, worth worth checking out. And I think this is a, a great example of how how some newbies, not just young but new to the field, um, uh, came into the space and, and took uh, a fresh look at things and came up with something that's potentially disruptive and got got the attention of of uh, investors and and uh, experts and I think you know they've got something going on here too and I think we're seeing a number of these things that we read about all the time these you know young inventors but this is one that's right uh, addressing one of the big problems that that we face with the circular economy which is what do we do about plastics Right. And uh, the entrepreneurs here point in particular to plastic debris in the ocean, which we know um, reports by the likes of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and McKinsey have also pointed to that as a potential opportunity for creative solutions to sort of take this massive amount of waste and perhaps turn it into a positive, turn it into a, a value source. Um, so in this case, bioselection is looking at an upcycling process where the plastic waste is chemically, bro chemically broken down into a low weight compound, this lighter material that can be fed to microbes. Um, it could produce a lot of different things. This is where I'd be interested in seeing where it goes. There's the option of going waste to energy. That's one route. Um, but also potentially turning these bioengineered microbes into materials that could be used in fabric manufacturing, for instance. Yep. And once again, that 1967 movie, The Graduate, where there's that advice that there's a great future in plastic, rears its head. One of the things I got to do here at the uh, Green Biz Executive Network meeting in Chicago is run in face to face with uh, our friend and Green Biz editor at large, Bob Langert. Uh, Bob, you may recall, is the uh, former head of sustainability at McDonald's, where he toiled for about 30 years and really set the pace for sustainability leaders overall. And uh, if you, in case you missed it or didn't see the whole thing, he did a fabulous three part series that we ran. In Green Biz, starting I guess in in late August, uh, one a week, uh, that lessons for sustainability leaders 
Um, and um, it just was really a great series. Yeah, well read. It's getting lots of comments. I know people are kind of saying, I wish I had seen all of this stuff when I was just starting out in my career. Exactly. And at the Green Biz Executive Meeting we had last week in um, uh, at BASF in New Jersey, uh, a number of the people in the room were, uh, Bob wasn't there, but a number of the people in the room were just quoting from it just without notes. They just had obviously read it, me memorized it, and there were some memorable things there. So I got a chance to sit down with Bob just for a few minutes and have him reflect on this series and on, you know, why he really saw value in bringing this uh, wisdom to the world. So I'm here with Bob Langer at sitting at the beautiful Chicago Botanical Gardens overlooking this lake in this very peaceful environment. It's a great place to have a conversation with you, Bob. Um, you just did this Great series uh, for us. Uh, lessons learned about sustainability from your your thirty years or so at McDonald's. What inspired you to decide to put all that down? I just wanted to pass it on. I wanted to pay it forward. I paid a lot of dues. I had a lot of hard knocks. Uh, I had successes. I had failures. And I really have a big passion to make the future leaders in sustainability be better, quicker, and faster. It took me a long time to learn all this stuff. And I go, you know, I really want to package everything that I've learned and help other people. You, you, one of the things that you said that struck me was um, to act a little bit like Steve Jobs. <laughs> well, tell me what that meant. Well, I sure re I love reading the book that Walter Isaacson wrote about Steve Jobs. And the half of the book, I, I couldn't stand the guy. I mean, Steve, Steve Jobs is a real jerk. But I tell you what, I loved his passion. I loved his commitment, and he was relentless about what he wanted to get, you know, for, for Apple and innovation and change. And I find that that's a problem in business in general and in the sustainability field, that people aren't bold enough, they're not strong enough, they're not opinionated enough to push change. Because what's needed in sustainability leadership is changing the status quo. And you've got to have some of that Steve Jobs in you. But I would say be like Steve Jobs in terms of innovation and this boldness, but you could also be a nice person doing it. <laughs> yeah, I guess. That, you don't want everyone being a jerk. There's enough of those in business, I guess. But, uh, you know, a lot of this is in what you also said was that, um, you know, the school of don't ask permission but beg forgiveness. Uh, did you do a lot of that at McDonald's? My first boss was Uncle Shelby, and that's what he preached to me. He said, Bob. Shelby Astro, right? Is his name? Shelby Astro was the, the top lawyer, the general counsel for McDonald's when he hired me back in the late uh, 80s. And he said, Bob, he first thing he said, I don't want you to work on 10, 20 things. I want you to work on two things every year that make a big impact. And don't ask for permission to do anything you do. Just come back and maybe ask for forgiveness. So he really gave me a, a long leash to do uh, my work. And I've really followed that advice, not only for myself, but for the everything that I've, all the people I've tried to connect. I try to give them a, a lot of room to move because I want them to be bold and courageous and make a difference. You have to have a sense of fearlessness. You have to have some sort of sense of, I could lose my job. Okay, I always felt if I'm fired tomorrow, that's just fine with me. And if you have that feeling that, you're okay with being fired. It doesn't give you permission to act like, you know, some 
you know, somebody doing the wrong thing in your company, but it gives you the freedom to be an advocate for what you believe in. And I really feel in the sustainability field, you need to be a big advocate for change, and you have to have the sense of fearlessness. So, so give me an example of something you did at McDonald's where you exhibited that fearlessness and just went and did it and, you know, with the, let the chips fall where they may. Well, the, probably my favorite story because it was a good, it was a great impact was when Greenpeace campaigned against us. And so I remember getting the, they started a campaign about 10 years ago about soy being grown in the Amazon, interfering with the, the Amazon deforestation, a whole set of demands uh, against McDonald's for what we should do. And I, I looked at it. I talked to some experts, and I quickly learned that the Greenpeace campaign was correct. It was, it was a legitimate campaign, a legitimate issue. Conservation International confirmed it. The World Wildlife Fund confirmed it. I knew my company wouldn't like the idea of us going along with Greenpeace. I mean, who likes to be attacked? Who likes to have all our people show up in your restaurants in the UK dressed up as chickens? <laughs> and, and giving us these ridiculous – they give us these ridiculous demands. And by the way, we're only one-tenth of one percent of buying soy. So we weren't really the problem. So very typically, wouldn't the company kind of hide – put their head in the sand, ignore the issue? Hey, this is a problem, but it's not our problem. Kind of push it along the road. So I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to stand up for this one. This is one where I think I'm going to say Greenpeace is right. Uh, and I'm also going to be an advocate to go back to Greenpeace and tell them that we agree with you on the issue, but you're totally wrong with your solution. And uh, I was very, very happy. I would say 10 years before that, I wouldn't have done that. And I wouldn't have had the, the courage or the conviction or the confidence to have done that. But I, but I feel the sooner that leaders – can, can do that. They have the confidence to advocate for that in the business, but also go back to NGOs because a lot of NGOs, they're, they're testing the waters. They want to advocate something and their, their first entree into the company could be extreme, but look at it as a, look at it as a, as a friendly gesture that they're just coming to you because they want to make a change. You know, one of my lessons learned over the, over the years is that these NGOs are not the enemies. They are as, convicted and passionate about these issues as we are in a corporate area, they just have a different way of going about it. They're human beings just like us. They're as smart as us. They care about us. And if you can work back and forth with them, a lot of, a lot of times good things can happen. Anyway, on this issue, believe it or not, a soy moratorium was announced to eliminate all these practices within three months. So to me, it was all worth it. And you ended up, I don't think you said this just now, that ended up going down the Amazon River on a raft trip with Greenpeace. Uh, did you get any blowback from your colleagues at McDonald's? Well, sometimes they felt I was spending too much time, <laughs> too much time with some of the, uh, the enemy. Because uh, there is a stereotype that these people that come after you are, are actually anti your company, and they're, they're really not. And so the more you can bring in these NGOs into your own world, see what they do. I didn't go to Greenpeace just by myself. I went with three of my partners in supply chain and communications and in operations. And if you were a fly in the wall, you would not know who was from Greenpeace or is from McDonald's. And that's always been my view is that once you get to know the people and the issues, you can eliminate these stereotypes that people have, including in the corporate world. Well, I mean, I know you have so many more lessons and so many more 
great stories from what you've learned, and uh, I, I really encourage everyone to read that three-part series, and we'll provide the links on the on the website to that. Um, you know, Bob, is did you did you uh, shoot your water? There are more <laughs> stories to uh, to tell. There, you're going to have more advice to, to give us on the pages of GreenBiz. Well, that's a real good question, Joel. I put my heart and soul into this three-part series. Yeah, I felt like it. You know, so uh, my intention was to package everything that I have learned and see if I could help somebody else. Uh, I'm writing a book, uh, and this is all these lessons learned are going to be in there. And there's a lot more to be learned and passed on. So I, I hope to be writing about topics about leadership because there's nothing better than the feeling of being a leader where you can you can create transformative change. And so that's really what I try to advocate for and what I've learned over the years, and especially with new technology, social media, email, all the distractions we have in our daily lives. I think leaders are having a hard time staying focused, being ruthless. Going back to Steve Jobs, he was really ruthless, wasn't he? Say, hey, we're going to do these three things in, in, in our company at Apple. And I would say that that's a challenge I put to the listeners on this podcast is don't do a lot of things. Do one, two, three big things that make transformative change. And it takes time and patience and persistence to, to do all that. Well, I think you've got a lot more stories in you, and we'll definitely look forward to the book. But we'll also look forward to reading more of your columns uh, on the pages of GreenBiz. Uh, Bob Langer, former McDonald's executive, now editor-at-large at GreenBiz, uh, sitting here on the uh, side of a lake on a wonderful evening here in Chicago at the Chicago Botanical Gardens. Um, what a lovely conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joel. Great to be with you again. Next week's Verge Conference coming up really soon. We're going to be doing something called the Summit Series. And here to tell us more about that is my colleague, Shauna Rappaport, the the Director of Engagement for Verge at Greenbiz Group. Uh, Hey, Shauna. Hi, Joel. So Summit Series, tell us what's that all about? Yes. Well, this is our inaugural year of launching a Summit Series, building really on the success of something we did the prior two years called uh, City Summit, which is, in effect, um, this year, a series of events within the event um, that really provide people the opportunity to dig a bit deeper and in a pretty action-oriented and solutions-focused context. So we're going to be producing four half-day summits across um, across the four days of Verge, um, focused on topics including the utility of the future, next generation of buildings, circular economy, and sustainable transportation systems. So what happens at these that's different from the rest of the conference? You say it's kind of a conference within a conference. What's the difference? Well, so much, I mean, in a way of what Verge is all about is creating the conditions for people to not only gain information and insights and about solutions, but but 
meaningful connect, you know, create the conditions for meaningful connections. And the spirit of this summit series is to create a more focused container that allows people to do that in a much more interactive way. So unlike the rest of the event where we have keynote presentations and, and, and panels, there are actually very few formal speaking roles within Summit Series, with the exception of some foundation setting at the beginning. This is, there are going to be sticky notes on walls. People are going to be rolling up their sleeves and interacting in ways that, that frankly, people don't usually have the opportunity to do at these kinds of events. So rather than sitting in the room and watching the stage on stage, these are really working sessions. That's exactly right. And we've been, you know, really intentional about curating the group of people who are going to be participating in these summits. You know, we call them invitation only, though certainly anyone can request an invitation to participate. But part of that is really about ensuring that the whole ecosystem is represented in the room. So for example, the Utility of the Future Summit, we have utilities, we have have large um, customers, we have folks coming from government, we have policymakers, um, which really allows for a much more robust conversation. And for people who, frankly, often are operating in their own silos, give them the opportunity to really sit down at a table and, and, and work through some, some challenges together. So why do this now? What's the, why are we doing this this year? Well, you know, to a large extent, the decision, uh, our decision to launch Summit Series was in direct response to the really positive feedback that we got the last two years um, about City Summit. You know, I think, you know, the market is definitely saturated with conferences these days. I mean, you can find a smart city conference or intelligent building conference, five of them happening every day. But, you know, to the extent that the summits are really a microcosm of Verge, this is about celebrating that diversity of people that are coming together and creating the conditions for really meaningful, not just conversations, but connections to happen that can help accelerate the markets and enable new partnerships and business opportunities. And ultimately, that's what Verge is really about. We can sit around and have conversations about solutions all day, but unless we're actually forging the relationships to help accelerate them, that's where the good stuff happens. I love it. Roll up our sleeves. Let's get to work. There's a lot to be done. So the Summit Series is coming up next week at Verge. It will not be part of the uh, live stream, unfortunately, but uh, you can check other parts of Verge out via the live stream. We'll tell you more about that later in the program. Uh, thanks for letting us know about the Summit Series. Uh, Director of Engagement for Verge and Summit Series impresario, Shauna Rappaport. Thanks, Joel. I look forward to reporting back. Lauren, you had a great piece this week about an organization called Groundswell that has with has a pretty good uh, pedigree in terms of its leadership and uh, is doing something interesting in the renewable ecosystem. Uh, t- tell us about Groundswell. Yeah, so I connected with their CEO. Her name is Michelle Moore. She's actually a former White House official, originally hails from Georgia, and very focused on a range of different efforts to get not only energy efficiency, but also solar power on rooftops, community solar, 
out in the world for a range of different populations. So they're working a lot with churches and faith groups to see um, what they could do with extra space, maybe around church parking lots, those sorts of things. Um, But also looking in areas like the rural southeastern U.S. to see what they can do uh, with rural power cooperatives, which maybe don't have the same sort of red tape around clean energy as other jurisdictions. So really what we're talking about here is sort of this concept of radically expanding access to renewable power, which we keep hearing about could be a phenomenon given that costs are dropping, but people haven't quite figured out the models to make it happen. Yeah, I remember uh, Michelle Morwell. Uh, she was the federal environmental executive uh, early on in the Obama administration. And um, before that, she was, I believe, at the U.S. Green Building Council and uh, uh, really quite accomplished in in the green building space and, and renewable energy. But how, how is this different from some of the other organizations? There's Grid Alternatives and some others that are working in a, in a similar space. I think, that, like you said, they're definitely all working towards similar goals. But what's really interesting about Groundswell is that they've partnered with a financial firm called Sustainable Capital Advisors to look at putting forth concrete business models that would get solar beyond sort of this reliance on looking at credit scores, FICO, all of that stuff, um, and maybe look at the history people have of paying their utility bills, especially in areas like Baltimore and Washington, D.C., where low-income residents tend to have disproportionately high power bills. And here's what Michelle Moore of Groundswell had to say about the latest in moving beyond FICO scores to find new models for solar. The rooftop solar marketplace has really exploded. I mean, we have uh, finally hit the million solar installation mark uh, a couple of months ago, earlier this year, after you know 40 years in the making. And we'll double that to 2 million installations within the next two years. So the PPA model uh, that's based on consumer credit and a long-term power purchase agreement, and um, sometimes some cash up front too, has been very effective in scaling the marketplace. And investors, um, uh, structured finance has gotten very comfortable with that model. So it's something that the market understands. You know, when we think about how we innovate to bring low and moderate income consumers in in a way that's really respectful to the fact that, you know, they're paying more than everybody else for electricity already, too. These are, you know, people who are paying their bills already um, that, uh, you know, there's a there's a demand for innovation there that that uh, that will be able to get investors comfortable with so that the solutions are able to scale. Um, it's not that, you know, power purchase agreements and consumer credit are the only way to do it. Right now, it's just a familiar way to do it. So one of the places that we've looked at inspiration is focusing on utility credit models, for instance, uh, for getting projects development instead of treating community solar arrays like a big rooftop. You know, and by looking for inspiration in how utility credit models work, I think another source for inspiration for Groundswell and for SCA has been looking at affordable housing. Uh, not only for models for project finance, but also looking to uh, affordable housing for models for long-term community-aligned ownership um, has been very fruitful as well. And there are other models that I'm aware of uh, that are looking, for instance, at how big employers with big rooftops you know, can think about that real estate asset of their roof, you know, not only how they can monetize it, but also how they can get their employees subscription to more affordable, clean power, even as a part of their CSR commitment and their employee benefits program. And so there are many opportunities for innovation out there. It just takes, as uh, Ray Anderson always said, 
courageous innovation to create that first demonstration and those first examples of models that the market's going to be able to get its mind around, you know, that aren't so exotic that they won't scale, um, that can help bring many more people to the clean power table. Community solar is at this really incredibly exciting, very nascent stage of the marketplace where there's a lot of stuff going on. There's this tremendous promise, this tremendous potential upside, you know, that NREL has helped to identify as being, you know, single largest distributed power source in the country within five years, so, you know, $8 billion plus potential investment opportunity. But the market is really getting organized around that. Um, there's, what, 100 megawatts of community solar projects in operation today, maybe 120 projects around the country. And so it's hard when you're thinking about 100 megawatts, potentially 8 gigawatts, uh, to think about, you know, dominant models in the current marketplace. Um, you know, where we focused is uh, around executing on the goals that we announced last November. So from a groundswell perspective, you know, our aim is to convene a target of five community solar projects by the middle of next year to demonstrate our model towards replication and scale. And what we found in working in communities, you know, low and moderate income communities, primarily in D.C. and in Baltimore, uh, where you've got policy, uh, you know, policy environments that are enabling, is that, you know, the, the demand is potentially tremendous. You know, there's some explaining you have to do for sure. You know, but the possibility of people who rent, you know, people for whom from a financial perspective, even if they own their home, you know, installing a, a, a solar array on top of it just really isn't feasible for them to attract investment to their community and um, and to make better use of, you know, vacant lots or underutilized assets is incredibly attractive. And even in the past six months, you know, we've gone from announcing goals to having five projects under letters of uh, letters of intent, site access agreements, moving into detailed technical design and feasibility, you know, towards formal interconnect applications with another five projects behind them in the pipeline. You know, the, the five projects in D.C. And, and, uh, and Baltimore would total around two megawatts between them, and um, they'd be a mix of ground mount and rooftop mount. And the, the projects that are, that are, you know, under an agreement now and many of the projects in the pipeline are working in partnership with safe institutions, with the church community and primarily with the African-American church community. You know, in the, in churches, you have, you know, institutions in some cases with big roofs and land that they're not using. And when you're talking about a lower income community, the church is also a center of community, right? It's where you go when your kids don't have a coat in the wintertime to get a coat. You know, it's where you go for food when you don't have food to feed your family. And so when you look at, you know, electricity costs, you know, as something that's like a big bill, you know, 10% plus of total household income for the poorest 20% of the country, even more in places like D.C. and Baltimore, um, where you've got like Baltimore, the you know, report that we put out earlier this year, 12.9% of families living in poverty paying $200 plus per month for electricity. Um being able to provide for that kind of staple in a way that's affordable, you know, from a groundswell perspective, it's discounted versus the utility standard offer of service, uh, but also that's more just in terms of providing investment for the community and a source of power that honors people's health and well-being is a really powerful offering. And another thing that they're very focused on, like I alluded to, is working with the faith community, um, so churches in particular, and seeing what sort of opportunities might exist there. 
Well, a lot of this sounds like it syncs well with the Sustainable Development Goals, which is this set of uh, 17 big, hairy, audacious goals that uh, the United Nations countries adapted last September, in fact, almost a year ago, on September 25th last year. Um, and access and equity are two key parts of that. Is, is Are they looking to work with companies in these efforts? Yes, definitely. So the potential for public-private coordination is a big area of focus for more. Um, in particular, like I said, they're really looking at the rural southeastern U.S., this area that we don't tend to think about very much at all when it comes to solar deployment. You think much more Massachusetts, California, Minnesota, other places. Um, but since these cooperatives have sort of uh, a different approach or a different market reality, um, they're very intrigued by how private players could come in and help deploy some of these systems. So here's what Michelle had to say about Groundswell and the potential for coordination with businesses. Ultimately, Groundswell's project development model would depend on private investment um, to drive project construction. So, you know, Groundswell was serving as a nonprofit project developer and subscriber manager, you know, if you will. And then, you know, we're working to develop projects that would then leverage private sector investment and, you know, low-cost debt from community development finance corporations or uh, from CDFIs or from USDA, you know, depending on where the project was located. And, um, you know, one of our goals is to demonstrate that that finance model works at scale so that we can create a business case, if you will, you know, an example that the broader market would be able to utilize, you know, to give them confidence and also a pathway um, that they could take to bring more low-income families to the table. Uh, we also think that, um, you know, that, that work in community solar because of uh, the community investment component, because of the visibility, you know, because of the um, agency, you know, that people can take in bringing it to their community has the potential to be a powerful pull-through for energy efficiency. You know, for Groundswell's work, Energy efficiency is a fundamental part of the way that we engage with the people who live in the community. That is a way you can help people start saving immediately. But clearly, you know, energy efficiency is probably one of the least sexy things in the world. It's all behind the wall. A lot of it's behind the wall. Um, it's hard to see because you get your utility bill at the end of the month, and especially if you're struggling, you know, any savings just kind of like disappear into this thing that the average American family thinks about all of nine minutes a year, you know. But um, if energy efficiency is part of what you're able to continuously engage people about, you know, once you've built a relationship, you know, with, uh, with where people get their energy, you know, through a community solar project, we think that there's some real transformational opportunities there. And once, you know, clearly with the, the scale of a utility, you know, that utilities would really be able to leverage. We see some of that happening actually among rural electric co-ops already. Great. Well, I love this. And uh, let's hope there's a groundswell for groundswell. And by the way, Mich Michelle Moore is going to be at Verge next week. So we'll hear a lot more from her.
It's, as I said earlier, it's a wrap. That's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find links to the organization, stories, events, and other things that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks, as always, to our podcast director, Soraya Melkonian. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350, live from Verge 2016 in Santa Clara. Until then, for all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. Yeah.